Kirby, Brett Helms battles for the rights of fathers and the unborn. Kristen Day stands for life in the Democratic Party. And the hilarious Handy Good Green performs. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Thank you. Thank you very much. We have a great audience here in our theater. So happy to have you join us for our show. Now, when Democrat National Committee Chairman Tom Perez said that Democrats wouldn't allow Fox News to host any of the Democrat debates, there was some real hand-wringing and some complaining, even from some Democrats like former DNC Chairman Ed Rendell, who thought that was a big mistake. Now, having run for president in 2008 and 2016 and been on that debate stage numerous times, I just might know a thing or two about those debates. Let me surprise you. I don't think Tom Perez went far enough. These televised demolition derbies are not debates. They're a TV show made to get ratings and to bring big bucks to the TV networks. Now, I was on debate teams in high school and college, and none of these TV circuses are real debates. They're not even close. I think both parties should never let their respective processes of selecting their party's candidate be hijacked by TV executives who aren't staging these things for you, the voters, but for their own selfish interest to make money by turning these sham shows into nothing other than a food fight. So here's my advice for the party chairman, should they want it. Number one, take back control. You and not the network should determine when, where, and who will be on that stage. Networks manipulate polls to determine who even gets on the stage, and even so much as where they stand. I mean, the purpose of a primary is for the voters in that party, and only that party, to choose their respective candidates. It's not a network's primary. It belongs to the party. So, act like it. Number two. Balance the amount of time each candidate gets equally. Each candidate should be allocated the same exact time for the duration. And if a candidate uses all of his or her time with the very first question, that candidate is done for the night. It would result in better and more thoughtful answers, and some candidates wouldn't be allowed to dominate. Number three, the parties should select the moderators. Hey, folks, don't allow people who hate the candidates on the stage to create and ask the questions. Doesn't make sense. I'd say get some local news people. Or, heck, since it's a game show anyway, just let Pat Sajak or Alex Trebek do the whole thing. I mean, it'd be way more professional. Most of the anchors asking the questions are just playing a gotcha game. And they spend three minutes asking their question and then telling the candidate, you have 30 seconds. You know what? I think the candidates ought to have three minutes and tell these preening pretty people from TV, you have 30 seconds. That's how it ought to be. It's not supposed to be about them. Number four. Stop the nonsense of two-tier debates based on manipulated polls and some TV executives deciding who gets on the stage. Now, if there are too many candidates to have them all on the stage at one time, put all their names in a hat. Just before the event, draw half of them for part one and half for part two. There wouldn't be a so-called kitty table, which is insulting to candidates who often risk everything to do something that the TV stars don't have the guts to do, and that's run for office. That would fix that. <laughs> Number five. The parties would screen and approve the questions. Put a stop to the stupid nitpicky nonsense that pretends to be a thoughtful question. And let the candidates actually discuss issues and solutions instead of being asked to comment on some other candidate or to respond to silly controversies and questions that are designed to create a soundbite for the news. Now, 
if the traditional TV networks refuse these rules, then put the debates online. Hey, I got a better idea. Put them right here on TBN. TBN reaches the same viewers, and in fact, because of its global reach, it actually reaches even more. I say quit letting the fake news media pick the party's candidates. They are exploiting the parties and the candidates just to make money. And the American voters deserve better. And there is a way to give them better. So to Tom Perez, the Democrat Party chair, and Ronna McDaniel, the Republican chair, I say, hey, call me. Let's talk about this. As a candidate, I took what was to some a controversial position on stopping the horrors of abortion, because biologically, the child is a person from the moment of conception. And I believe that the issue wasn't the phony issue of privacy, as Roe v. Wade said in 1973, but rather the personhood of the child. Established personhood, and that child is now protected by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, which prohibit taking life or liberty without due process. In the light of horrific laws being put in place in states like New York, allowing babies to be killed even after they've been born, there is a ray of hope coming from the state of Alabama. A young father has sued the Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives in Huntsville, saying that he wanted to keep the child that his girlfriend decided to abort. The ruling of the judge from this lawsuit was the first time that a court in the nation provided both parents equal rights over an unborn child and established that unborn children have the rights of legal personhood. Joining us now is the attorney representing the young father against the abortion clinic in Huntsville, Mr. Brent Helms. Brent, first of all, thank you so much for being here. And I want to get to the case. What can be changed and transformed as a result of this very significant landmark case? Well, obviously, we've established personhood with regards to the unborn baby. And in establishing personhood, as you just said, we then vest that child with rights, and those rights have to be protected. So in this case, obviously, the first of its kind, we have a baby who was aborted who now has the opportunity to vindicate itself from that abortion. If this ruling stands, it does, in fact, create the legal foundation for personhood of the unborn child. Help our audience to understand why that is a game changer far bigger than even a reversal of Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court. In establishing personhood, obviously, that gives the baby constitutional rights. I mean, the difference is, well, right now, a baby that is born, takes its first breath, is vested with constitutional rights. However, in the state of Alabama, uh, the judge has ruled that uh, from conception, an unborn baby is a person, and therefore that baby then possesses constitutional rights from the time of conception. This is so incredibly important, Brent. And, you know, I don't know the judge, but he's my newest hero. What is the initial reaction? Has there already been uh, appeals filed by the abortion clinic and by uh, others filing friend of the court briefs on behalf of the abortionist? You know, we're not quite to that point. We filed our complaint. We're still waiting for an answer. That answer is due to us April the 1st. We were gracious enough to give uh, the Alabama Women's Center a 21-day extension to file their answer. So we anticipate that filing on or before April 1st of this year. When you took this case, did you have any idea the significance that this case could present in helping to establish personhood for an unborn child? That was exactly what we hoped for, and the state of Alabama was ripe for that decision. So we moved forward with confidence that it would be granted, and it was. I, I can't begin to tell you how delighted I am to see it move to personhood rather than privacy, which was the basis of Roe v. Wade. What reactions are you getting from other attorneys? A lot of support. You wouldn't believe how many attorneys have reached out and are willing to provide service in this case, even pro bono service, to see it through uh, to the end. So we're excited and we're encouraged and we appreciate all those who have reached out and we welcome those who want to reach out. I mean, we're willing to work with those who have as their goal to protect unborn children and to establish rights for fathers. Thank God for Ryan Majors, the young man who uh, is the biological father for uh, also being willing to file this case. Thank you very much for being here. A pleasure to have you. Thank you.
We're going to be following this case very closely, so watch for updates on the show. You can also learn more about this case by visiting HelmsLawGroup.com. That's HelmsLawGroup.com. Hey, Keith, I hear we have a great show tonight. I'm going to let you tell us a little about it. We sure do. Coming up, comedian Steve Smith and his outrageous red-green show. Then Huck's hero, Ron Hall. And later, Grammy Award winners, the Fairfield Four, perform on Huckabee. Welcome back. Well, before Home Improvement or Duck Dynasty, the Red Green Show taught us that men love hunting lodges, power tools, and of course, duct tape. That classic comedy series is back. It's streaming on DVD, and uh, it's also a great show. Its creator is about to launch his This Could Be It live tour. They're gonna to be all over the country. I hope you will catch one of the live performances. But right now, would you please welcome Red Green himself, Steve Smith. My wife likes us to go on day trips in our car. Not easy for a husband and wife to travel together in a car. <laughs> After you've been married a while, it's sometimes dangerous to be in a confined space <laughs> with no witnesses. <laughs> the main problem is the design of the passenger seat. You know, back before there were cars, you would have like a horse and buggy or a stagecoach or a chuck wagon, or for those with motion sickness, an up chuck wagon. <laughs> That was back when riding shotgun meant riding shotgun. The passenger's job was to watch for robbers or hijackers, give them a speedy trial, and then announce the verdict loud and clear through at least one of the barrels of a 3 3 <laughs> Well, eventually some sissy figured that was not politically correct. So the passenger's job changed from hired killer to navigator. You'd hear mom giving course corrections to dad, or clearing her throat real loud so he'd know he was going the wrong way. <laughs> then along came the GPS. Well, now a man could get directions from some little gizmo that never made a judgment or held a grudge. <laughs> the only downside was the passenger now had nothing to do. <laughs> Yet, there they were. <laughs> Sitting right up front. They could reach the knobs and dials on the dashboard, control the radio and the heater, and so on. And worst of all, they had time to talk to you. <laughs> and you were trapped behind the steering wheel and couldn't get away. Whenever you see a car that T-boned a bridge or drove over a cliff, if there's an older couple in the front seat, probably wasn't an accident. <laughs> So if you want your marriage to last, you're going to have to make a major renovation to the passenger area. <laughs> you know when you have a newborn baby in the car seat and the manufacturer will recommend that for safety, you put the seat in so the baby's facing the back of the car. <laughs> That's step one. <laughs> you take out the passenger seat, swing her around 180 degrees, get it facing the other way. Now the passenger can't see what you're doing, so they're not able to give advice or criticism. Plus, they can't reach any of the controls on the dashboard, which are really none of their business. <laughs> and having a conversation with the driver is real tough. So it's all good news. Much safer for your wife to be sitting backwards where she can talk to the kids face to face and just leave you out of it. <laughs> or, if you're lucky enough not to have kids, <laughs> you can convert the back seat into a hobby center slash craft corner. <laughs> Your wife's gonna love that. 
She'll be making really ugly quilts and animal-shaped tea cozies well into the next century. <laughs> now, she may say she prefer to have a vanity back there so she can do her hair and touch up her makeup, but you gotta be careful, because a vanity always has a mirror in it. That's gonna let her see what you're up to, which kills the whole deal. On the other hand, if your wife does most of the driving, bonus, lose the crafts, drop a big screen TV back there. Come on, everybody will be happy. It'll stop you from flinching. It'll save your marriage. And at your age, this is the only fun you're gonna have in the back seat. All right, Steve, where do you come up with this stuff? You know, I've, I've got a mind that sees things oddly, you know, and uh, I've, I've managed to turn that into an asset rather than a liability. Well, it's a great asset. Thank 300 you. shows you did. The yeah, Red a couple Green of them show. weren't bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was one of those things. I started in Canada, and uh, the way I got the show on the air, I went to the local TV station. Huh? I said, uh, I need you to give me enough money that I can do something but not enough that you care what it is. <laughs> you talk about duct tape. Yeah. Most men, I find, have one thing on their mind. How long is this going to take? You know? <laughs> Wherever they go, they go to a show, they go to a concert, they go to see their relatives. How long are we going to be? They're just, I, can, I can go two hours, you know, if I know. Yeah. So duct tape, you can fix something in 10 or 15 minutes. And another thing is, why have a repair job that outlives you, you know? <laughs> so having to fix something several times is a glimpse of immortality. Now, let's talk about this tour, because I, I looked at the schedule yeah. on the website. Mm -hmm. Steve, you're all over the place. Oh, I, I mean, to, you're all yeah. over America, you're all over Canada. Yeah. A lot of the shows are already sold out, but you've got yeah. a lot of shows where people can still come. Yeah. That's a pretty ambitious schedule you've put together. It is. I didn't know if it was going to be my last tour or my second last one, so that's why I called it This Could Be It. What's the next one going to... The next one's going to be called This Is Definitely It, you know? <laughs> or you could be like Cher. She's had like 17 farewell concerts, and she's still going. So. I can't afford the surgery, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think you want the surgery she's had either. <laughs> Please don't do that. If you do, you're not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you've worked with some great comedians, I, I've seen some of the bits uh, on television with Dave Thomas, one yeah. of the funniest people. Yeah. Did anybody just ring your bell that was just so much fun to work with? I grew up in the <laughs> 50s where, you know, it was Jackie Gleason and Milton yeah. Berle and Red Skelton and that kind of humor, you know, which wasn't, there's no malice, you know, there's no anger yeah. and there's no obscenity. So, I'm out here t in 2019. I'm not angry and I'm not obscene, and yet I can f still find work. Like, it's a miracle. People are hungry for this kind of humor. Oh, I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah. Steve, it's, it's so apparent yeah. that people are tired of being lectured, they're tired of being yelled at, they're tired of being uh, embarrassed into laughing right. nervously because of something that is so blue. Right. I mean, the reaction that you get from audiences is very evident that what you're presenting is genuine humor, things that make people laugh, because it's just really funny. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you very, very much for being here. My what pleasure. a delight My and pleasure. an honor oh. to have you with us. Thank you, Mike. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you very much. Hey, Keith, I want you to tell our audience how they can keep up with Red Green and go to his shows. Let them know. Oh, yes, sir. We'll do that. For Red Green's This Could Be It tour dates, DVDs, streaming episodes of The Red Green Show, and of course, you can join the Possum Lodge. Just visit redgreen.com. He's also on Facebook, at Red Green, and Twitter, at Real Red Green. And for a bonus Red Green performance, visit Huckabee.tv. Next, it's Huck's hero, Ron Hall. And later, Democrats for Life leader, Kristen Day. And gospel music greats the Fairfield Four on Huckabee. And welcome back. Now, with all the craziness in our society today, it is imperative that we honor the people who are making a positive impact on the world. And we call these amazing people Huck's heroes.
He's an international art dealer, an author, and film producer. While serving in a homeless mission, he met a homeless man, and the friendship that built from that moment forever changed the trajectory of both of their lives. Here to tell us this amazing story is our Hux hero, Ron Hall. Ron, thank you for being with us. What a pleasure. Thank you, Governor. Thank you. A lot of people have read this blockbuster book, same kind of different as me. It sold millions of copies. The most compelling story probably in the last dozen years of a guy like you, art dealer, uh, had everything materially. And then you met a homeless guy because your wife said, I had this dream and you gotta go meet a homeless. I mean, how did this all come about? I have to admit that I had a moral failure 10 years before that mm. dream. And uh, for the forgiveness that she showed me, she showed me Christ-like forgiveness and she threw my sin as far as the East is from the West. And I promised her for that forgiveness, I would do anything she asked me the rest of our lives together. Mm. And so fast forward 10 years later, she had asked me to, be, to do nothing except be faithful, and I was. Hmm. So uh, one night uh, she had a dream about a homeless man, and she said he was a poor man who was wise, and she said it was like a verse in Ecclesiastes where Solomon found uh, a poor man in the city, and by his wisdom, the city and lives were changed. So we, uh, we went into the, we started volunteering that afternoon at a homeless shelter. We'd been there a couple of weeks when all of a sudden, pandemonium breaks out in the dining hall when this giant looking creature w walks in with no shirt and no shoes and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm gonna kill whoever done it. I'm gonna kill whoever stole my shoes. And she said, that's him. And I said, that's who? <laughs> and she said, that's the man in my dream. And I said, and I said, which one? Because there were 300 homeless men in there. She said, well, the one threatening to kill everybody. And then she looked at me and she said, and I believe I heard from God that you have to be his friend and find out if my dream was real. <laughs> you only thought you were forgiven. <laughs> Debbie, I was not at that meeting you had with God. Wow. And if I'm going to be friends with someone who wants to kill everybody, I should go talk to God myself. Well, I did have that brief conversation with God. And I know that I heard him say that uh, being friends with a homeless man is a small price to pay for the forgiveness that he and Debbie had shown me. Wow. So. Now you got to know Denver Moore. That was that big guy that came <laughs> in was. shirtless and shoeless. And that relationship changed both your lives. Well, it did. It was uh, her, her dream that he was a wise man. It took me five months of a cat and mouse chase daily through the inner city of Fort Worth to get him in my car. And I finally get him in my car and he screams at me. He said, what is it you want from me? I said, man, I just want to be your friend. And he thought that was so incredulous that I wanted to be his friend. He said he'd have to think about it. Well, a couple of weeks later, <laughs> I was so arrogant. I thought, why would a, a poor homeless man with nothing want to be, have to think about being friends with a, a rich man who could give him everything? After yeah. all, he was the man of my wife's dream. <laughs> so uh, so uh, I, I saw him a couple of weeks later taking trash out of a dumpster. He lived by a dumpster in the inner city. And, uh, and so I, I said, you want, we, want to go to coffee. So we were sitting at Starbucks and he said, I've, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? Oh, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, well, I do. So what do you think about that? He said, well, tell you the truth, there's something I heard about white folks that really bothers me. It's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. And, uh, and, and he said, but I bet you can answer the question. I said, okay, then ask. He said, I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. I said, well, of course they do. It's a sport. You don't get it. He said, no, sir, I don't get it. Because back in Louisiana, where I grew up on a plantation, we'd go out in the morning, we'd dig us a can full of worms and cut us a cane pole. We'd sit on the riverbank all day. And when we finally got something on our line, we were proud of what we caught. He said, so it occurred to me, if you a white man fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, huh, I ain't got no desire to be your friend. <laughs> And my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of this yeah. poor man who was wise because yeah. the, what he spoke to me at that moment was the wisest thing I'd ever heard on friendship. How about that? I was this, hooked. This guy had been in prison at one of the worst prisons in America, Angola. Angola State Penitentiary. I have visited that prison and, you know, it, yeah. it had the reputation of being the worst prison in the entire country. He was there in the 60s when it was, when it was, when it was run by the prisoners. The name of the book, as well as the, the movie, same kind of different as me. What does that mean? Well, Denver was saying, and, and fast forward here a, a few 
uh, years, uh, a couple of years later, I mean, he, he was prophetic. And he became a person that God used to uh, encourage us the most through the darkest days of our lives. Because just a few months after he and I became friends, uh, Debbie uh, came down with cancer. And mm. so she lived for 19 months. But every day for 19 months, he would show up on our doorstep with words of encouragement that he had gleaned from hours on his knees talking to God. And so uh, when he preached uh, her funeral, uh, she, she, he came the last day she was alive and said, Debbie, uh, I've, God said that what you do for the homeless, uh, you've become precious to God, but you've become important to the devil. He said, watch your backside. And then just a few weeks later that she, was, she went to be with the Lord. But her, the last day, he came to tell her to lay down her torch, and the, God told him to pick it up and carry it for the rest of his life. So, uh, wow. so when he preached her funeral, he said, whether we's rich or whether we's poor or something in between, this earth ain't no final resting place. He said, so in a way, we're all homeless, just working our way home. Mm. He said, when he first Beautiful. met Miss Debbie, he said that he, he, she was so different from him, and he was so different from her, that he didn't think they were ever going to have no kind of friendship. But he said he soon discovered, and now I think the world knows his beautiful words, that he said, I discovered that everybody's different. They're just the same kind of different as me. What a beautiful, so, beautiful. Yeah. So this uneducated former convict becomes a sage of great wisdom. Yes. And over the course of years, the two of you raised over a hundred million dollars for homeless people across America. Well, we, I say we helped raise. We had a lot of help in raising that. But it wouldn't have happened had the two of you not ever met as a result of that dream. I mean, it's, that's would, a lot of money to raise It would have not people. happened apart from her forgiveness to me uh. because I was headed in another direction. And it would not have happened apart from his catch and release meeting. But, you know, after Debbie died, he moved in with me. And he mm. and I lived together for the next 10 years. And we traveled all across America. His mantra every day was, every day carries its own miracle. And I saw... You know, I, I saw he was a homeless loner that lived by this dumpster who spoke to no one, become a motivational speaker, and was honored at the White House by the Bush family. As we were leaving the White House that day, he starts laughing hysterically, and I said, what's so dang funny, Denver? And he said, I done gone from living in the bushes to eating with the bushes. <laughs> he said, God bless America. This is a oh, great country. And God bless Ron Hall. The book, same kind of different as me, is available wherever books are sold bestseller and you now know why it is you can find out about the book and also the movie which by the way had a pretty good cast greg kinnear uh renee zellweger john voigt i mean what a cast and uh the movie is also available on dvd visit same kind of different as me.com and visit same kindfoundation.org that's how you can find out how you can do something in your community for the homeless people Ron, an honor to have you here. I'm going to let Keith tell us. We got some more show coming up. All right. But God bless you. <laughs> Thank you, Governor. Thank you. Oh, very nice. Coming up, news that will make you smile. Then novelist Joel Rosenberg and Kristen Day for Democrats for Life, all here on Huckabee. Welcome back. We're happy to have you with us. Uh, 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 Governor. Yeah. You like my, like my outfit? Uh, love your outfit. Uh, what's going on? Well, it's St. Patrick's Day this uh, weekend, uh. as you know. And I wanted to share a good old Irish joke with you. See, Connor the barber was hearing complaints from his customer, Sean, about the price of his barbering services. I'll tell you, Connor, your Boston barber's got a stranglehold on all of us Irishmen here in town. I was in Dublin just last week, Connor, and you charged me one and a half times more than what they charge there. Well, says the Irish barber, that may be true, but think of how much I'm saving you in airfare. Oh. Gov, huh, Gov I wait, I've got a way better joke. I hope so. Oh, I want to hear that. Way, way, way better. I hope so. I mean, so. I was, okay, okay, I got a good one. All right. Why do people wear shamrocks on St. Patrick's Day? 
I have no idea. Me neither. Yeah, you okay. Got me. In my best Irish accent, you ready for this? Okay. Yeah. Way yeah. better. Okay. okay. Because regular rocks are way too heavy. Mm. Hey, don't you think he ought to finish the joke? I need a buzzer. That... Uh, very <laughs> funny, fellas. All right, by the way, I know a fella who actually knows a girl that married her husband on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, really? really? No, O'Reilly. Oh. Uh... That wasn't any better than yours. Let's vote. Huh? Hey, we do want to wish everyone a very happy St. Patrick's Day and offer a sincere apology for Keith and Trey's jokes. <laughs> now, from a man who mastered sleeping while driving in L.A. to a town who elected a goat as mayor, we've got the news that just may make you lose your mind on a segment we called In Case You Missed It. Well, out in Los Angeles, a couple were stunned to see a man driving down the Los Angeles freeways at 75 miles an hour while sleeping. Yes, apparently the Tesla driver was using autopilot while catching a nap on the highway. Mr. Seth Blake and his girlfriend recorded the man snoozing while riding right next to them on the road. And did I mention he was going 75 miles an hour? The young couple said they rode next to him for 10 minutes before hitting typical L.A. stop-and-go traffic, which the young couple said felt safer than riding next to the snoozy driver. So how does this guy wake up when he arrives at his destination? And for crying out loud, who gets asked, how was your commute? He probably says, incredibly restful. <laughs> well, let's all pray that Tesla Motors doesn't come up with an outboard or onboard shower or even worse, an in-cabin commode. <laughs> All right, Dateline Vermont. You've heard of places going to the dogs? I bet you've never heard of one going to the goats. Well, the good people of Fairhaven have elected a three-year-old Nubian goat as honorary pet mayor of their quaint Vermont hamlet. Now, look, I'm not kidding. The nanny goat named Lincoln was elected to a one-year term by the townspeople. The town of 2,500 people, does not, they don't have a human mayor. Full disclosure, the ballot was only open to the animals of the residents. Most of the candidates were cats and dogs, but a libertarian gerbil named Crystal also ran. <laughs> Inside a gerbil wheel, of course. 53 votes were cast, with Lincoln the vote amassing 13, narrowly defeating Sammy the dog, who had 10. And the other 14 animals split the remaining 30 votes. Town manager Joseph Gunter said Fairhaven, Vermont, was trying to raise money for a playground, and they garnered $100 from a $5 entry fee on Election Day. I wonder if they called it a poll cat tax. <laughs> well, police in North Palm Beach, Florida, report that Shane Anthony Mele confessed to stealing a collection of rare coins. These coins were valued at $33,000. And then he ran them through Coinstar change-making machines. You know, those machines at the supermarket that you dump your change jar into and you get back the face value? Can I repeat the face value? These were stolen rare coins. The face value of these coins would have been $33,000. But wait, it gets stupider. There's a 12% service fee. I mean, this guy must have thought, if money doesn't grow on trees, why do banks have branches? So his final haul from the theft, because the machine didn't know that these rare coins were rare, they were just coins to the machine, there was just enough in face value to buy a case of beer. So that means it'd be about $2,750 a can in real value. And I say, ouch to that. That's a worse return if he'd put the rare coins into a vending machine and just bought Snickers bars. Maybe he figured he'd get enough Snickers when he told other people what he was in jail for. Police say that Melee is also facing an unrelated 10-count drug charge. Really? <laughs> they think all those drugs are unrelated to the brilliant coin machine idea? I see a connection. Ah, Florida, warm nights, beautiful beaches and an unending fount of stories for in case you missed it. Now look, I love Florida. I live there, I enjoy being there as well as in my beloved native state of Arkansas. But I gotta admit, we've got the craziest criminal stories and most unusual laws out of the Sunshine State. 
and Nancy Pelosi doesn't even run the legislature. <laughs> it's all inspired. Jacksonville's minor league baseball club, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, that's the name of the team, they're going to schedule July 26th this year as Florida Man Night. The team has pledged to break a different weird Florida law every inning during that game. Now, they didn't reveal which ones, but CBS Sports offered a few. For instance, in Florida, if you leave an elephant tied to a parking meter, you have to feed the meter. <laughs> Hopefully, you also have to feed the elephant. In Saratoga, Florida, there's a law against singing while in a swimsuit. Considering some of the people I've seen on the beach, I think it ought to be against the law just to wear the swimsuit. Forget the singing. And then there is a law against men wearing strapless gowns in public. I can't believe the Democrats aren't protesting that one and demanding its repeal. And I guarantee nobody will break the Florida law against having romantic relations with a porcupine. I mean, that's a prickly subject in most states anyway. I said, that's a prickly subject in most states anyway. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Ah. Hopefully all those lawbreakers don't find themselves in jail after the game singing, break me out of the ball game. We move on. Now a few shout outs before we close. A shout out to Monsignor Stephen R. Camp of the Catholic Church in Huntington, New York, who disinvited New York State Senator James Gorin from their Irish American Catholic St. Patrick's Day parade in Huntington because he voted in the extreme abortion laws of that state. Monsignor Camp said the senator promoted the law that violates adherence to our Roman Catholic faith and the security of the Irish race. I'd say that deserves a shout out. And a shout out to the Democrat National Committee for choosing Milwaukee, Wisconsin for its 2020 National Convention. Now let's see if they'll be able to get over the incredible amount of polluting air from the methane produced in America's dairy state. <laughs> I dare say by the time the convention rolls around there, the amount of bull butter coming from the candidates is going to far surpass what dairy farmers put into the air to make those delicious, squeaky cheese curds. And like a one-term mayoral goat, we've run out of time. But never forget, day or night, we read the news. My next guest is a Middle East expert. He's a best-selling author whose international thrillers based on real-world events are often a step ahead of the news. His latest novel is called The Persian Gamble, and it just came out. It is an honor to welcome back Joel Rosenberg. Joel, thanks for being back. Good to be here with you, Governor. You are a prolific author. This is a, a book you've just gotten out. This one really is kind of a, a could-be real-life story of what could happen in our world. Yeah, uh, so uh, just yesterday, I was uh, invited in to meet with President Trump for the first time. I'd never met him. Uh, I was having lunch with Vice President Pence. And of course, the president says, so I understand you're an author. Tell me, give, give me the elevator pitch on your, first, uh, your, on your current novel. I said, well, it's this. The Persian Gamble is about this. What if the Iranian regime took the $150 billion that President Obama gave them for the quote unquote Iran nuclear deal? What if Iran took that money and went to North Korea and secretly tried to purchase fully operational nuclear warheads. Hmm. And uh, President Trump said to me, how do you know they're not doing it now? <laughs> and uh, now, now you have to understand that he, he not, in the room is also Secretary Pompeo, yeah. uh, uh, Ambassador John Bolton, and of course the Vice President. So I'm like, well, you people are supposed to be making sure this, the Persian gamble never happens. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm trusting uh, for it to happen. So, but it is a chilling, and that's the, one of the challenges, I think, of writing a political thriller, especially that ones that Pence and Pompeo and these others read, is how do you hold, how do you create a, a fictional, you know, made-up scenario that seems just plausible enough to be chilling? And I think that's the key. You have to have a plausible plot, which you do in this. It's possible that there could be this collusion, not between President Trump or the Russians, a collusion between North Korea, Iran, and even Russia, because right. they're all sort of outliers 
uh, they've kind of distanced themselves from the rest of the civilized world. And that's what's so dangerous, exactly. Yeah. That, it's, it, it, that in real life, you've got Russians who, uh, Vladimir Putin, who is you know, not religious at all. He's a, he's a 21st century czar. But he's teaming up with the dear leader of North Korea, who thinks of himself as a god. And they're teaming up with the Ayatollah of Iran, who thinks, oh, I'm not God, I'm John the Baptist bringing in the, hmm. the, the genocidal, uh, uh, you know, 12th Imam Messiah. This is, this is a match made in hell. And, uh, but you mentioned about the collusion. Uh, yeah. I do have to say that when I was here last year, uh, my first novel in this series is The Kremlin Conspiracy. Yeah. So I did mention to the president... I said, listen, this has nothing to do with the allegations yeah. against you, but I think you should take a copy of the Kremlin Conspiracy, walk across the South Lawn, hold up a copy of the book and say, the Kremlin Conspiracy, it's fiction, people, it's fiction. Get on Marine One, he fly had off. He loved that. Uh, well, he laughed, so I hope. Uh, we'll see. I think it would be hilarious. Uh, it'd be good for me, but better for him. Uh, when you write stuff like the Persian Gamble, this, this latest one, where do you get the ideas... I mean, I could say from the pages of the newspaper, but I mean, you weave an intricate plot. That's, yeah. that's pretty creative to come well, up with. Well, I have to start by saying um, I'm one of the few Jewish people in America who didn't get the financial gene. <laughs> so I'm not your stockbroker or your hedge fund manager. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I pretty much got the gift of making things up yeah. for a living. So <laughs> unlike, Dick, Mor unlike <laughs> Dick Morris, uh, who, uh, uh, I am a failed political consultant. Yeah. Everyone I worked for lost. <laughs> or did well many years later, right? I helped Steve Forbes lose $70 million in two presidential campaigns. I worked for Bibi Netanyahu in 2000 on his comeback campaign. It took him nine years to come back. I'm, I was once on uh, Pat Buchanan's TV show on MSNBC. They canceled it the next day. So I moved into political thriller writing. You know, I think we're finished you, Joel. I think we're done. Y'all give a big so. thanks to <laughs> So political thriller writing is how I got into it. And what's happened is... You know, not every political thriller writer has spent time in politics. Yeah. But one of the benefits of even having failed was working for interesting people and, and, and learning some of the rhythms of Washington. There are three former CIA directors who are now readers of these novels. I've become friends with them over the years. You know, you begin to tease out of them. What are the things that keep you up at night? Yeah. You know, downstream, you think it's never going to happen, but you worry, wow, that's what I want to write about. And so... And, and do you run some of this stuff by people like that just to say, I do, is yeah. this accurate? Is, yeah, this, is it plausible is this possible? enough and, and how could I tweak it to make it more plausible but also more scary? So I wrote a series of three novels about ISIS capturing chemical weapons in huh. Syria and then plotting a, a series of attacks in the Middle East and against America. But in one of the novels, ISIS tries to assassinate King Abdullah of Jordan and take over the Kingdom of Jordan. Now, for some reason, I decided to make King Abdullah an actual character in the book, like by name. Yeah. Now, that's risky, you know, because he's a real person really fighting, as it turns out, ISIS. So, but he ended up reading that novel. And rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, uh, he invited my wife and me to come and spend five days with him wow. and his military advisors, essentially to show us how he's working to make sure that my books never come true in his country. That's my goal. And then I like to go and meet the leaders and say, please don't ever let this stuff happen because it's just supposed to be fiction. It's a great book. The Persian Thank Gamble, you. Joel Rosenberg. See you. And uh, just released March the 12th, just come out. So all major booksellers have it. You can order it. You can even get a sneak preview of the first chapter right now. You can learn about this book, The Persian Gamble, and all of his other books and his nonprofit for Israel called the Joshua Fund at his website, joelrosenberg.com. It's right there on your screen. Now, Keith, if folks take a gamble on the rest of the show, I wonder, what are they going to see? Well, next, Kristen Day from Democrats for Life and the legendary gospel sounds of the Fairfield Four on Huckabee. With the recent battle for the abortion survivors bill, which wasn't passed, the sanctity of life is a vital issue in our culture. 
Now, what you may not realize is that there were Democrat congressmen who voted to support protecting those innocent children. And there's an organization working within the Democratic Party to protect life. I'm very pleased to welcome the executive director of Democrats for Life of America, Kristen Day. Kristen, thank you very much for joining us. I want to get right to this first question. Why did the Democrats for Life get founded? We founded mainly because the pro-life Democrats were not getting support from within their own party. And also at that time, the pro-life movement started to move towards supporting Republicans. So when I was hired for this job, I, my goal was to put myself out of business. Huh. And uh, so that we wouldn't be needed anymore to, uh, to advocate and support pro-life Democrats within the party. What's happened within the Democratic Party? Because I can remember when there were a lot of pro-life Democrats, prominent, and some that maybe weren't prominent, but they were very important fixtures within uh, the ranks of Congress. And it's hard now to find right. those Democrat uh, members of Congress. What's happened? The abortion rights lobby has just become so strong and has been successful in raising so much money and putting so much pressure on these pro-life Democrats to not vote their conscience on this issue. And, um, you know, so we've gone from 125 pro-life Democrats 30 years ago to only three in the U.S. Um, three. Or two now in the U.S. Senate and three in the U.S. House. In the Senate, we have Senator Bob Casey and um, Senator Joe Manchin. And we were really, really pleased that um, Senator Jones from Alabama joined the, our two pro-life Democrats in voting for the abortion survivors bill. Um, we were very grateful that he, he made the right call and did the right thing on that. And then in the House, we have Senator or Congressman Dan Lipinski, Congressman Colin Peterson, and Henry Quayler, Congressman Henry Quayler from Texas. And um, we actually were, were able to successfully elect a fourth one in the, in the House, um, Ben McAdams from Utah. There are a number of very prominent Democrats who are also active Catholics. And the Catholic Church, quite frankly, they were way ahead of the evangelicals in understanding the importance of the sanctity of life issue from a spiritual perspective. Can you explain how do mm -hmm. they um, reconcile their personal spiritual views and then a political view that is at complete odds with that? With the abortion issue, um, when they say they won't vote their conscience, you know, apply that to any other issue. You know, I'm against gun violence, but I'm not going to force my personal views on anyone. You know, I believe we should support the elderly through Social Security, but I'm not going to vote that way because I don't think I should impose my personal views on anyone. So it just it doesn't apply across the bench. And so uh, it's very frustrating that they, they consistently use this, I'm personally pro-life, but I'm not going to vote that way. And we're really... Um, really want to hold people to the fire on this, um, especially in 2020 in the presidential election. We've created a candidate questionnaire. We're going to ask these all, every single one who's running, um, do you think that pro-life Democrats belong in the party? Are we welcome? Should people be able to vote their conscience? Right now is the most difficult time to be a pro-life Democrat because there's such tremendous pressure uh, to not vote your conscience. And again, I think that's why I'm, I'm so proud of the, the three U.S. senators who voted the right way on this, this important legislation that the Senate brought up. It was um, shameful that my own senator, um, who is a Catholic, Senator Tim Kaine, did not vote the right way. And, um, you know, Senator Warner, too. Of all the issues in the pro-life world, I think that one was the most difficult for me to understand because we're not talking really about an abortion issue. This is an issue that the birth has already happened. I think by most standards, we would say that's murder when you take a baby that is alive and breathing and you just say yes. we're not going to save it. It was very disappointing to watch the Senate debate on this issue because it seemed to me that none of the, um, the Democratic senators actually read the bill. I think the only three that actually read the bill were Senator Manchin, Senator Casey, and Senator Jones, because they understood what this bill actually did. Looking back, uh, you know, I think we could have expanded this conversation to provide more support for women and talk, maybe spoke more about, uh, should we inform the women about adoption opportunities and, um, you know, things like that to provide more support to the women counseling after this happens. I hope more Democrats will listen to your message I hope, you know, they'll stay within the Democratic Party. We need two vibrant parties. Our country is better when they're both vibrant, but they're also better when they're both honest and stand for life and stand for things that they have historically stood by. And I'm going to say thank God for you. Thank God for the people that are oh, working with thank you. Thank you. And I hope that you will continue to have influence 
and that, uh, frankly, the ranks of elected Democrats who are pro-life will grow. And, and frankly, I'd rather see some elected pro-life Democrats uh, than some maybe milquetoast Republicans who don't stand for the issue. So uh, I wish you oh, very, very Amen well. to that. <laughs> And I'm going to say, Thank we're, you. Yes. we're glad you're fighting for life and doing it within the Democratic Party. And please don't stop. And to our audience, I want to yeah. say that if you'd like to know more about Kristen and the work of this important organization, visit democratsforlife.org. That's democratsforlife.org. Many of you who are watching, you're Democrats, but you're pro-life. Help these folks. Make a contribution. Stand with them. Help them. And help get some Democrats elected. Uh, who will stand for human life. You can also keep up with Kristen on social media, at Pro-Life Dem. That's at Pro-Life Dem. It's on your screen. Keith, tell us what's ahead on the show tonight. Well, after the break, an American institution performs the Grammy Award-winning harmonies of the Fairfield Four. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds. My next guests were featured in the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And they've won multiple Grammys for their a cappella vocals. The legendary gospel group has been making music for nearly 100 years. Please make welcome the Fairfield Four. Hallelujah. 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 I've been going ever since I made a start. Made a start, days are brighter. Oh, well, hallelujah. You know that it made my burden lighter. Jesus, love just bubbles over in my heart, in my heart. Well, I've never been to heaven, but I've been told. Jesus, love just bubbles over in my heart, in my heart. He tell me the streets up there. Just bubbles over in my heart, in my heart. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I've been going ever since I made a start, made a start. Days are brighter. Hallelujah, you know that in my burden lighter. Love just bubbles over in my heart, in my heart. Love, I just bubbles over in my 